is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Younger kids could soon be next for the COVID vaccines. Pfizer says it works in kids between 5 and 11. Now they're moving forward with pursuing authorization. And we'll talk to someone who played a key role in the Biden administration when it comes to vaccine distribution and COVID strategy. Pandemic also having a major impact on the health of people who never even got the virus. Let's begin with vaccinations for younger kids. Anne Ramoyne is a professor of epidemiology and director of the Center for Global and Immigrant Health at UCLA. Uh, Doctor, this seems like a good news sort of thing for worried parents. Yes, it's really terrific news. Uh, we're we're all going to be feeling great when we can start getting kids vaccinated because we are seeing so many cases in children and an increase uh, in in not only just cases but also hospitalizations. So very very important and a great time to see this kind of news. Have you seen a lot of cases with with mothers who you know working moms who who have just been at wit's end because they've spent a year and their kids couldn't go back to to school and in many cases some were able to work from home but some had to give up jobs I'm sure. Well, I'm sure that that's the case. As you know, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist and not a clinician, so I don't actually see um, um, patients. But I certainly could be aware of, of I'm certainly aware of, of this kind of scenario happening. And it makes perfect sense, given the situation. What other things does this translate to? Because we, we automatically think about schools and we want the kids to be safe in schools. So you keep them safe with the vaccine. So if other people bring it in, then they're in a better place. But also stuff just like child care and daycare in general. There's probably a lot of people who were afraid or wary to, to send children to places like that because, again, they didn't know and they didn't want to, the child to either bring it back home to somebody else who's in a higher risk group or, you know, see it from from someone older who maybe doesn't have their vaccine or at least the kid doesn't. So if there's a breakthrough case going around, something like that, then your child is still at risk. Well, then I think that this is really important for several reasons. I think that the, the, the first thing is that we're now going to have a vaccine that's going to be able to, um, if, if it goes through all of the, the processes appropriately, then we're going to see that, that we have another tool in our toolbox to keep the kids safe. Um, you know, these, these data today are based on a, a clinical study um, where more than around around 2,500 participants aged 5 to 11 uh, were given the vaccine. And it was a much smaller dose than the dose that's been used for kids that are 12 or older. Um, and what was looked at was the safety, the tolerability, and the immunogenicity in children. And what they, what they saw was by uh, measuring immune responses in kids and looking at these neutralizing antibodies in their blood, uh, they appeared to be similar to the to the uh, older groups. And so, what this means is they're they're extrapolating to say that a strong immune response in this cohort um, can be seen, and that it was very well tolerated. That the side effects were generally comparable to those people who were in the 16 to 25 uh, years of age group. Uh, there were no instances of severe outcomes. Uh, and so I think that this is a really important uh, piece of the puzzle. Um, we still have to have this go through FDA uh, review and approval, and then it'll go to the CDC, as we have seen over and um, over again. Uh, and so I, I think that this is really important. The other key thing to remember is that if this vaccine is authorized for kids between ages 5 to 11, that means that we're going to have millions more eligible to be vaccinated. Uh, that's certainly going to help with 
herd immunity. Uh, it's certainly going to um, provide a, a very, very strong layer of protection and really stop this virus from continuing to spread. I do wonder, though, if there's going to be any sizable, uh, you know, uh, pushback from parents, because you've got some parents, of course, who themselves haven't been vaccinated because they have what they consider to be concerns or valid concerns, even if they're not uh, about the vaccine. And I wonder how many of them are going to say, well, I don't know, my kid's not likely to get very sick from COVID, which they're not likely to get very sick from COVID. So why subject them to a vaccine? Well, I think it's going to be very, very important for for the the data to be examined in full, which it will be. We'll see it go forward through the through the standard processes, uh, and and then parents who have concerns should talk to their trusted healthcare providers, to their pediatricians, uh, to people who who really can give them advice based on their own personal situation. We know these vaccines are going to be very safe. The data is really proving to be so. Um, but it's true. Children have a much lower risk of COVID-19, of severe outcomes of COVID-19 than adults. Uh, and so, but it's, it's not a zero risk. So it's going to be important to, uh, to be able to, to weigh those risks. And I, I think that, that many parents will choose to get their children vaccinated. I think it's a, you know, we, we, we choose to get, children vaccinated every day because we know we want to protect them and we want to protect everybody else in the community as well. Dr. Ann Ramoyne, Professor of Epidemiology, Director of the Center for Global and Immigrant Health at UCLA. Andy Slavitt just wrapped up his work inside the Biden administration as a senior COVID advisor. He played key roles in distribution of vaccines and forming a comprehensive strategy to fight the virus. He's with us now to talk about vaccines, mandates, masks, everything else pandemic-related. He's also got another podcast, In the Bubble. Andy, thanks for being here. Take us through this recent Twitter thread of yours about clearing up some of the confusion over the boosters. So, look, what we've heard from is actually just an advisory committee. These are outside experts telling the FDA their opinion. Some of those opinions um, made sense. Some of them may not have made sense. Uh, but it's all part of our process of looking at how to make scientific decisions under uncertainty. What happens from here is that the FDA commissioner herself, who was on in the bubble this morning, will decide what her recommendation is, and then it will go over to the CDC. As if that wasn't enough, the CDC has its own advisory panel, which will make a recommendation. And then finally, and I'm guessing this will happen sometime by the end of the week, the head of the CDC will come out and say, here's what they're going to do. So while, as you said, the first inclination is to only approve boosters for people over 65, give, over the course of the week, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that changed and included uh, even more people. And over time, I think it undoubtedly will include more people. Do you think that uh, the president made a, just a, uh, a strategical error? by talking about the, the 20th, which after all is today, uh, as the day. And yes, I know he, he did include the caveat, you know, pending uh, FDA approval. But you know as well as I do, people didn't hear that. <laughs> the headline was, you know, president promises, you know, booster shots from the 20th of the month. And here we are on the 20th. And of course, that's not happening. Should he not have boxed himself into a corner? And how does something like that happen in the White House anyway? Well, I don't know what he should have done, but I think it's important that um, you always emphasize that we want to follow the science and, and follow the scientific process. And if he didn't say it enough, he came back and I think said it later that it's important to defer to the FDA's decision making. But his job 
is to say, regardless of what the science does, we need to be ready. And the White House needs to be ready to roll out boosters beginning the week of September 20th. Um, they are ready. They have the, they have the shots uh, available. They're ready to go. And now we need to go through the scientific process. And I know people uh, don't like mixed messages and feel confused, et cetera. But I'll tell you, you know, given the choice of a system where it's a little bit muddied, uh, but we allow dissenters to speak their mind, we get scientific opinions on the table. I take that system any day of the week over a system that looks cleaner, maybe come from the Chinese government, but you never know what's really going on behind the scenes. You said you expect maybe even more people get the nod. Um, what do you think the cutoff's going to be? Because you listen through some of these experts and they say, you know, I don't know if the evidence is really there yet, especially for someone who's, I don't know, healthy and, and 30. Yeah. Well, it, so it depends on what you're trying to solve for. If you're trying to reduce hospitalizations, um, there's really good evidence that you'd, cut, you'd make the cutoff somewhere between 65 and 60. But the reason there's an argument to go lower, and the argument is this. We're not just trying to reduce hospitalizations. We're trying to get our economy back. We're trying to get people away from having to quarantine. We're trying to get kids back in school and not be sick. And so we need to, we need to vaccinate the people around them to reduce the spread. And so if reduces the spread to vaccinate teachers and parents, uh, you could make the case that you could drop down a little bit lower. I don't think they'll go as low as 30. In my opinion, there's ample justification to go as low as 40 now. And of course, people younger than that are still not, they're still within their six month period. So I don't think it much matters beyond that. Andy, were you surprised at all by the level of resistance in this country to the vaccine, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's a sizable number of Americans. It is a little surprising. I mean, uh, now my surprise happened earlier than it happened for others in that um, when we joined, when I joined the, Obama administ the Biden administration, I should say, on January 20th, only about 40% of Americans at that point said that they were interested in getting vaccinated. And, you know, we, while, while we were early in the summer, we vaccinated so many people. We were second or third in the world. We're now 45th. We're the last democracy. We're lowest democracy in terms of vaccination rates in the world. And I think many, many countries, as soon as they get the vaccines, are, are all passing the U.S. So we're going to be among the lowest in the world if things don't change. What is, is surprising. What is our problem with the vaccine? Is it become too political? And some people don't understand that as to the why. Because, I mean, Donald Trump took the vaccine. I think it's deeper than that. I think, I think it's, I think it's about a distrust of science and expertise in this country, um, a distrust of government uh, that runs pretty deep in certain circles, um, and to general suspicion. And then I think the people who purvey misinformation, whether it's for elections or for uh, on vaccines, do a really good job. They take advantage of these platforms. Uh, Facebook. I'll give you a statistic. Um, two-thirds of all the unvaccinated Americans believe one of five falsehoods about the vaccine. And they, the number one place they get that information, their information is social media, in particular Facebook or WhatsApp. So there are a lot of people who kind of prey on this, this inclination to kind of not trust science by putting out a bunch of 
you know, as we might call them, alternate facts. But, you know, it, it's and I agree with what you just said, but it's I think it's even deeper than that. There's something else going on here in, in this country, because, you know, uh, just last week, for example, here in Southern California, in, in Los Angeles County, uh, you know, they, they said, oh, it's going to be mandatory to have vaccines if you go into certain indoor places, but not, for example, restaurants. And then when we asked officials why they're not doing that, the answer was there's a lot of pushback. You know, restaurant owners, we can't hire people. We're not, we're not going to be security guards. But but my colleague here, Mike, you don't mind saying, right, because we were talking about this off air. You just came back from overseas. Yes, I was in France. Right. And and your experience there going to stores and restaurants was? Okay, it took me maybe 15 minutes of doing the test and then another 15 to literally get into the French system and put the app on my phone, gave me a QR code. And then every place I went to, there was just like an A-frame sign outside said, hey, wait here. And so you waited for a minute or two, and then someone, whoever it was, the host, uh, the bartender would come out and scan your pass, and then you were in. And so, it was as easy as that. Right. So, so I guess that's my question, is how can all these other countries, I mean, they seem to manage to to have enough people at their door to check vaccination. And in this country, we hear not just in L.A., but all over the country, you know, store owners, they're like, oh, we can't do this. We're not We're not security guards. What's wrong with us? Well, I, I've seen and I've seen that happen, and I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, I think the question comes down to: Are we willing, as a society, to inconvenience ourselves even a little bit for the safety of others? And you know, in other parts of the world, in, in Asia, in in France, and other places, you know, it's not even a question. If, if you say to me, you know, I'm going to have to inconvenience myself, I may not love it, but I know it's going to keep people healthier. It's going to reduce the spread. It's going to get people back to work. I'll do it. In the U.S., it's a little bit different. Um, you know, we we have um, people very much saying, you know, they don't want to inconvenience themselves. They think it's an affront on their liberties to you know have to take certain steps. And those attitudes, while they do exist to some extent around the world, they exist really strongly here in the U.S. And uh, indeed, there is a tight labor market, and employers are reluctant to ask people to do anything that they don't want to do. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, that's where we are, but this is about change being hard and change taking a long time, particularly in a country like the U S which is so wealthy and so privileged. You, you can imagine that if this pandemic continues over time, people will come around. We're just really slow to want to change here for whatever reason. I guess, do, do you think that we think it's more of an inconvenience than it actually is though? Because it didn't seem that hard where I was. Well, you know, people put up all will put up all kinds of. So first of all, I think you're right. I think this is the, the minors of inconveniences. But is is wearing a mask an inconvenience? That's you know, people consider that to be um, too much to do. And you know, some others would argue that it's quite a small thing to do. Um, so you know, but for for I think for enough people, any amount of doing things different. Whether it's waiting in line, whether it's showing a QR code, whether it's demonstrating a vaccination or wearing a mask, all of those things fall into a category of things they just feel like they shouldn't have to do, even even when the benefit to society uh, might be that it saves a lot of lives and ends this pandemic. And that's that's something we got to really deal with. Do you think that the president thought it it 
might have been easier than it's turned out to be to make rational arguments to the American public on why, you know, masking was necessary, why certainly vaccination is necessary. Do you think he thought maybe going into it, even though he's an experienced politician, that he thought his his, his sort of power of gentle persuasion would be more effective? I don't think he counted on the fact that there would be an other side of the argument. Um, I think he felt like, boy, this is, if we're ever in this together, it's when we're facing a virulent virus. Uh, I don't think he counted on the fact that there would be politicians saying, hey, you know what? Don't get vaccinated. Uh, Don't trust the vaccine. Uh, Don't listen to the government. Don't listen to scientists. Um, Having entire states, you know, chanting against Anthony Fauci. I don't think those things were things any of us anticipated. And so I think he felt, as we all hoped, that we would be able to have reasoned conversations, that they wouldn't all be easy conversations, that that some people would have legitimate questions that would need to be answered. Uh, and that, of course, on board. But I think the 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 size of of just the recalcitrant resistance by people who just want to put up a fight to all of it, I think, is a bit of a surprise. Andy Slavitz, until June, senior advisor for COVID response in the Biden administration, formerly served as the head of Medicare and Medicaid in the Obama administration. And now he has the In the Bubble podcast. Andy, thanks for coming on the show. Coming up after a short break, the pandemic hurting people's health, even when they're not sick. One of the negative side effects of the pandemic is that people have postponed and skipped medical care for non-COVID issues. And they postponed doctor's appointments and then just never bothered to reschedule. This led to problems. Dr. Vicki Barlow, family practitioner in Philadelphia with KYW's Matt Leon. What I am seeing is um, a lot of patients in my office uh, currently right now, mostly because for the last year and a half, people have been um, hiding away in their homes and not coming out and getting the medical care that they really need. Um, I'm part of um, MDVIP, so I have a personalized um, medical practice where I get to see patients for extended periods of time. So my waiting rooms aren't very busy, and I have, it's a lot easier for patients to come in and to see me, and um, I they call me on my cell phone, so I get to talk to them a lot. So we've been doing a lot of um, medical care through uh, telehealth and speaking to them on the phone. And since people have started to get vaccinated and they're starting to feel a little more comfortable and they're coming out, they're starting to come into the office. And I'll tell you, it's scary because people that a year and a half ago were you know, were that were pretty good as far as their diabetes or their heart disease or, um, you know, just their general physical care. Um, I've seen a lot of deterioration and um, it's, it's really a shame. People have ignored a lot of things that are going on. Um, they blamed a lot of things on anxiety when a lot of times it wasn't anxiety. There were, there were more serious things going on. And, uh, you know, we're trying to play catch up now and get everybody in to to treat them. You mentioned diabetes and I'm sure, you know, heart conditions. There's a lot of kind of ongoing uh, situations people deal with that over the last year and a half, they've probably not paid the attention to. Is there 
one you see more than others? Like, do you see, is it a lot of diet patients with diabetes that have kind of fallen behind where they need to be is, or is it a wide variety of, uh, uh, of situations? It's, I mean, it's definitely a wide variety. So for people with chronic diseases like diabetes or heart disease, um, what we're seeing is, um, you know, both of those conditions, heart disease and diabetes, a lot of that is managed with lifestyle. So here we have people that for 18 months have been sitting at home. They're not going out. They're not getting activity like they did before. Their eating has not been the greatest. People tend to reward themselves for being unhappy and, you know, they, they eat more poorly. Um, so I'm seeing higher sugars. I'm seeing um, people that have had heart disease progress. Uh, I'm seeing uh, people that have gained a lot of weight um, people that have lesions on their skin that are melanomas that they've put off and not gotten checked. So now it's, you know, more of a surgery to remove it than it is just a little shave. Um, I'm seeing people that haven't had mammograms and colonoscopies. Uh, Getting a mammogram now is is just crazy. I feel like everyone that's going in, they see something because uh, people just, just haven't gotten stuff done. And it's, yeah, it's, it, I'm seeing a lot of pathology, and that's not usually the way it is. We see a lot of well visits also, but not lately. So you talk about playing catch-up. How long do you think it's going to take to get back to a relatively normal schedule? Are we talking, I'm imagining we're talking at least months. Could we be talking like more than a year uh, before you, you feel like you've gotten back to a point where the majority of your the patients you care for are back into a regular rhythm of, of keeping up with stuff? Um, I think I think we're talking another about six months to a year. You're right. That is pretty much what we're talking about. Because, for instance, if you put off your mammogram um, before, before COVID, if you went in for a mammogram, you usually you went in, you had it, you sat in the waiting room, they told you, if they needed another view or if they needed to do something because of something they saw, they did it right then. And within like a week or two, pretty much everything's been done and tied up and and you're done with that. Now you um, go in for your mammogram, you leave right away. They call you days later. You have another appointment, a couple weeks to come in to get something repeated. It takes months to get in to see a surgeon. Um, It takes months to repeat films that need to be repeated uh, the hospitals are overloaded because they're seeing less people. Um, the doctors themselves, the, the specialists are also overloaded. If you need a surgery, I, I just made an appointment for a cardiologist for a patient. What is this? Uh, September 17th. Um, they're going to see this cardiologist in January. Crazy, really, really crazy. And um, this is, this is a pen, you know, it's the same thing at Jefferson um, it's the same thing at Temple. Um, I'm finding myself getting on the phone and calling the doctors individually and, and saying to them, you know, I can't get an appointment until January. Can you help me out? Which is just crazy. And it's, it's very disturbing to the patients because they're sitting there and, um, you know, anxious about moving on and taking care of what's going on. And everything is just being extended. So, yes, it's going to be a while before we catch up. The exact origins of this virus remain a mystery. There are some theories out there. 
Some are just crazy, but others are worth exploring. Researchers in Cambodia are trying to understand where it all began and are now collecting samples from bats. They returned to a region where a very similar virus was found in the animals a decade ago. Two samples from horseshoe bats were collected in 2010, kept in freezers. Tests done on them last year revealed a close relative to the coronavirus that has now killed more than four and a half million people around the world. Host species, such as bats, typically display no symptoms or pathogens, but these can be devastating if transmitted to humans or other animals. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.